The facts. In a talent market that is more competitive and less understood than any other time in history, it's the facts that matter. Welcome to Start Smart, the podcast that delivers the facts, the latest research and data on the key issues and opportunities facing talent acquisition and HR professionals. Everybody and welcome to Start Smart, the podcast that's all about the facts, the latest uh, findings in talent acquisition research and analysis. I'm Peter Weddle, the CEO of TA Tech. And I'm Shalia Gray. I'm the Global Talent Acquisition Lead for Quadient. And we take a look at the facts from two different perspectives, as you might imagine. Shalila takes a look at them from the employer's perspective. I take a look at them from the solution provider's perspective, and hopefully between the two of us, we can add some insight and understanding to the facts that are current in talent acquisition today. For today's episode, we're going to look at the pandemic and gender disparities in the U.S. workforce. It's a research report from Pew Research. Before we get started on talking about it, first, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, talent.com. The solution to finding talent your way. Work with the fast-growing, tech-savvy company dedicated to making the search for candidates easy. Are you looking to fill one job? How about a thousand jobs? Do you need a way to integrate your recruitment technology? Talent.com can find the answers for your business, and they can do it on time and on budget. Start growing with Talent.com. Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, we're going to take a look at the Pew Research Report on the Pandemic and Gender Disparities in the U.S. Workforce. Now, just to set the stage, uh, this report is based on an analysis of data from something called the Current Population Survey. That's a a quarterly survey of 70,000 U.S. households that's conducted by the U.S. Department of Labor and the U.S. Census Bureau. And this particular report from Pew uh, takes a look at data from the third quarter of 2021. And I think, as Shalila and I are going to discuss here in just a moment, one of the most interesting things about the findings is that they seem, at least in some respects, to fly in the face of conventional wisdom. According to the summary of their report, women aren't leaving the workforce in unprecedented numbers. There isn't a C-session underway, nor has pay inequality gotten any worse during the pandemic. So let's take a look at the facts. Uh, First of all, for some context, the C-session has been widely reported and it's based on a lot of different data. For example, MetLife did a survey of 2,000 women in September of 2021. So the same period covered by the Pew Research Report. And it found that one in five of the respondents said that they had, quote, been pushed out of their jobs. Uh, And even the Census Bureau reported that in January of 2021, 10 million women with uh, with school-aged children, that's one-third of all the women with school-aged children in the United States, they were not working at that point in time. Pew, in contrast, found that by uh, by analyzing the same census data, that the 
participation of women in the workforce had gone down by just 1.3% um, in uh, the pandemic, just 1.3%. For men, it was 1.1%, so a very modest decrease. But they said this C-session was just a more nuanced uh, situation because, uh, according to them, the pandemic's impact on women depends on their educational level. Those with less than a high school degree really took it on the on the chin. They left their jobs in greater numbers than anybody else. They were down 12.8%. College-educated women, on the other hand, had exactly the opposite experience. They actually gained in their workforce participation up by 3.9%. So what do you think, Shalila? Is, is this an accurate picture of, of what's going on with women in the workplace? I do believe that it's not a homogeneous situation that's happening right now. So their data seem to segment it out. And I agree with the segmentation that I do find that um, females um, that have higher levels of education, that they are one, I found that they're making more job moves uh, because they have many more options because they now have the option to work remotely and work from home. Um, but people in jobs that are in those uh, those that segment that does not require as much education, or are in the service industry, or in the healthcare industry, uh, jobs that were very vulnerable during COVID, that those jobs and the females that are taking those jobs has changed dramatically. That there has been an exit. Uh, their study talks about things like childcare impacting it. Uh, the need to be in the office or be at their location to get the job completed as being uh, factors that are impacting it. But I believe there's a segmentation of what's happening in the market right now. So in order to really address the situation with women in the workforce, we really have to understand that the the strategies that we come up with to deal with the situation have to be focused on the unique attributes of certain segments of that population. There, there is no one solution fits all. Really, you have to target uh, the specific uh, cohort of the population. And, and for them, for Pew, they thought that it was uh, women with uh, less than a high school degree or even women with a high school degree. They also had uh, a hard time during, uh, during the pandemic. So what do you think? What, what might make some sense in terms of strategies for helping these women re-enter the workplace, those that want to? You know, I think there's not, there's not one easy answer for this. One is because I think, you know, this is a change in how we work. The COVID has impacted uh, the work structure. It's impacted, you know, the great resignation talks about why people are not in the same roles or in the same jobs or taking jobs or doing entrepreneurial efforts. There's a whole shift here. So there's not one answer. What I'm going to say is that we may need to get back to the basics, which is looking at, and we talked about this in our last podcast, as our, as our employees as being humans today. Um, and the human aspect says is that um, there are challenges that are impacting our people as uh, heads of households, as family members caring for elderly and children. So how do we how do we how do we fit that in? How do we accommodate that? How do we make it work? I think that, you know, some industries, for example, when you think about food service, I've seen many things talking about the fact that 
females, which were a lot of a, a large population of food servers or restaurant workers, have left the workforce because of childcare issues. So I've seen um, the uh, ho- uh, restaurants and hotels start to look at robotics to replace some of those jobs, to look at that even in grocery stores to look more at robotics. But what happens to those women who had those jobs? I think the issue of job security and taking care of yourself and your family became more critical during COVID. And so they may be leaving those jobs and taking a different type of job, like in distribution or warehousing that are paying higher wages and are uh, more stable um, more stable in nature. But then there's still a gap of people who have not fully gone back to work. And those issues are why they've not fully got go back to work um, are things that we need to get to the root cause. We say it's childcare. That could be true because the childcare industry also shrunk during COVID. Um, many of the childcare daycare centers went out of business, all of that. Back in the 90s, companies used to, as a novel concept, start to put childcare centers inside of companies or offer a backup daycare when your daycare worker didn't work. And we've gotten away from some of those programs, and maybe we need to go back and look at some of those. In healthcare, that's the struggle for healthcare. We've always had a shortage of nurses. We've always had a shortage of people that are in that in that in that particular industry. And now it's being impacted because of the stress and strain and, and the, you know, the pressure we've put on those people as first line responders. So I don't know how we're going to address that in the healthcare industry. Well, I, I do think that uh, your notion of sort of going back to the past to go forward in the future and revisiting the provision of uh, child care uh, is going to be a necessary strategy going forward. And, you know, it, it, there are a lot of issues why employers uh, started to get away from providing child care. But I think perhaps we can look at a new approach to this kind of strategy. I mean, for example, a lot of restaurants are uh, located in a uh, similar area in, in towns. There's a hospitality district, if you will. Um, and it, it seems to me that all of the restaurants would benefit from them collectively, perhaps funding a child care, uh, a child care service that would that would help all of them out uh, and enable more women to get back into workplace if they wanted to serve, you know, continue to work in the in the uh, hospitality industry. Well, it's interesting you say that because one of the things that they've started to work collaboratively, like on kitchens, right? When, when uh, we went through COVID, brick and mortar rental space with, without customers coming in became a burden. So now you're hearing about uh, popping up in, in communities all over is they're doing communal kitchens. So restaurants are renting space to do their preparations and then they're doing food trucks and other things. So they figured how to pivot that they haven't pivoted on that piece. And I think that a part of that is the fact that in the United States, we're one of the few countries where food service workers rely upon tips. Our base pay has never changed. And it was such, somebody put an article out there like two years ago talking about the fact that because there was a disproportion of women in the food service business and the food service industry is based upon low wages and tips, 
the things that um, were impacting them in terms of sexual harassment in restaurants because, you know, it was perceived you had to dress a little bit different to get a higher tip or, or you know, maybe not flirt, but do things that to, to, to make the money that you needed. There's no, nothing to say that the food service industry cannot model itself out of other countries in the world, which is pay them a, a, a reasonable salary for the job. And then the tipping cons, and you, if you have to pass it on to us in food costs, guess what? The grocery stores are passing it on. The gas companies are passing it on. Pass it on to us so that we don't feel like we have to tip to make them, to, to give them a reasonable amount of money. Because then you're taking away the variability of the income and making it fixed. So I think some of those things, if we look at the pay structures, may make those jobs more attractive to women. Um, and people in general. I also think that there is a hidden danger here. Uh, not only are we not filling jobs, so productivity is going down. But as you mentioned earlier, uh, automation, uh, the automation of jobs is definitely on the rise. And and it's not just uh, in areas that you uh, you know, are, are fairly obvious, uh, you know, the, the, the production line automation and so forth. For example, uh, there are, uh, there's an example of a artificially intelligent robot that serves as a caregiver, caregiver in an elderly home in France. And the, the empathy scores for this machine are off the charts. Why? Because that machine is always there 24-7. You know, at 2 o'clock in the morning when a guest calls for help, the, you know, they're there uh, to, to provide whatever assistance is needed. So I, I do think that, you know, we have, we have a sort of a false sense of security about what automation will do to jobs. It's getting smarter and smarter all the time, our artificial intelligence. Uh, and so we need to address this issue for women in the workplace across the board. Uh, right away. Uh, I think it's an imperative. And I'm going to say we throw, so it used to be that we kept saying in our, in our minds, automation would replace people. But when you have negative unemployment, who is it replacing? Right. When you have, when you have it, this situation, uh, because I look at the, for example, the um, uh, long distance truck driving industry. And I had a peer who was in that industry and he said, you know, the people, the typical profile of people who drive trucks are retirees, um, husband and wife teams, because they can be mobile. They can see the countryside or whatever. So they used to do marketing, whatever. But those people are retiring out. Right. And, um, you know, people are not getting into the truck driving industry as much as they used to. Right. And even during COVID, that was a very hard thing to do, because when restaurants and hotels were closing up, they had nowhere to stop along their route. So it's not that glamorous job. But the but that industry saw a, ch uh, a challenge coming. And what have they done? They've started investing in you know self-driving trucks. I mean, that's that's where they're going. It's not replacing people anymore. It's filling the need because there are no people for those jobs. And I think that that's one of the things we've got to think about when it comes for some of these other things is that uh, what things are barriers or what things can we do to get more full participation of our people and make it easier for them? And it's probably going to be artificial intelligence. I think that's right. I think that's right. Now, the, the second set of facts that the Pew report uh, looked at were the number of hours worked. 
Um, and uh, I was surprised by this finding. I mean, we've all heard of the Great Resignation. Uh, for example, the Jolts report, uh, at least the last one I saw, said that there were 4.3 million people who quit in January. There were 11.3 million open jobs as a result, both of those near records. And I, and I think uh, since then, the, the quit rate has uh, you know, stayed pretty much the same. And, you know, what industry does when it can't fill jobs is it falls back on the tried and true strategy of doing more with less. It expects more per hour uh, worked by each individual. Uh, and uh, in our last episode, we took a look at the Corn Ferry Report on the future of work. And one of the facts they presented was that 89% of working men and women uh, reported describing themselves as being burned out. So I really expected that we were going to see uh, an increase in the number of hours worked. Uh, and that didn't happen, according to, to Pew. According to Pew, there was, for women over 25 now, there was no change uh, in the hours worked. And for men over 25, there was just a one hour decline in hours worked. So what's going on here? Well, I think a couple things. I think in and I, and I think this data, if you looked at it in 2020, when we first, because here's, here's the reality. There were some industries, some companies that allowed remote work and working from home, and it was just a part of the culture. But there were many companies that did not. For, 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 for some cases, it was because they perceived that they could not manage remote workers or trust that their workers were doing the work. So I bet if you looked at the numbers from early 2020, because um, I've seen it from videos and everything else, we probably worked an incredibly amount of hours over to justify the fact that we were able to work from home from people who had never worked from home before, right? You now got a laptop delivered to you. COVID made you stay at the house. You were, you were, you were also a school teacher, family caregiver, everything else. And I bet if you looked at the numbers there, you would have seen a, a spike up in the number of hours worked of us. But as COVID went on, I think people started to take a, a look at, that's why I think part of the great resignation, started to look at what is important to you, your quality of life and what you got, had to get done. And so I think now you've leveled off. People are now working that nine to five and saying, I want to go for a walk. I want to, you know, I want to leave my house for lunch, you know, because in the beginning of COVID, no one was going anywhere. You have everything dropped at the door. I think now we're going back, we're leveling back to say, work-life balance is important to us. And now that I'm at the house and my whole world is here, so I don't only work here, I live here, I eat here, and I take care of my kids here, that I really need to take care of myself. And so I think that now you're seeing that um, the time spent has changed. But if I bet if you looked in 2020, you saw something very different because it was a coping mechanism. I think that's right. I think that this uh, great resignation um, is actually a fluid concept, um, and it's affected by uh, at least two other variables. One, I, you know, I would call the great reassessment, as as you were saying. Uh, this is people thinking about what's important to me, not only in my career, but also in my life, and uh, placing more priority, more emphasis on those things that make people happy. Um, and the other is the great responsibility. Um, and there's no doubt, uh, whether it's right or wrong, that in our culture, women bear the brunt of child care and elder care. 
Um, so you have that dynamic as well. So this is a, a multifaceted challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, I do think that uh, Americans have traditionally spent more hours at work than almost anybody else on the planet. I think only the Japanese uh, work more hours uh, per week than we do. Um, and, and, and I think people have, are saying to themselves, you know what, uh, for all those hours worked, uh, I might have earned more money or hung on to my, uh, hung on to my job, but I certainly didn't gain any in happiness. So, uh, and I'm going to make happiness a higher priority. And we talked about it in the last study, the fact that we're moving to a different dynamic and the dynamic was winning. And we talked about in the Corn Ferry study that companies were trying to win and employees felt it was at their expense. So now that the coin has changed, where employees and candidates feel like they have more power, I think that they are using it to their advantage. I will say as a, as a person in recruiting in TA, I find candidates being bolder in what they ask for. In the, you know, it used to be how much is the salary? How much is the bonus? Is there a long-term incentive? But people are asking much more about health care. They're asking more about vacation time. They're asking about, they've actually sat there and thought about their career progression. I think that now it's in the hands of employees and candidates, and they're changing the conversation around, do I do I need to travel as much as, as, as this job says? Can I not do it from a Zoom call or, or you know, a Teams call? I think the, the conversation has changed and the power is now in the hands of employees and candidates. Now, we would love to have to say that it should be a win-win. Employees win, you know, and, and companies win. But I think the dynamic has changed. And for right now, there is there seems to be a power shift. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, and the third data point that the survey covered was pay inequality. And here, it seems to me that there might be a contradiction in terms in their findings. Basically, they're, they're under, their fundamental conclusion is that the pandemic did not widen the pay gap between men and women. They cite the, the findings that in 2021, women 25 and older earned 86% of what men earned. And in 2019, that gap was 85%. So the, the needle barely moved. However, they then go on to say, when you compare similarly educated men and women, so men and women that were mostly competing for the same jobs, the pay shortfall is 80 cents on the dollar. So pay inequality is a terrible problem. And it seems to me that it did in fact widen during the pandemic. What do you think? I feel like that we're finally putting the pay question on the table. So, you know, I was sharing, I had a conversation with my, uh, with my European team. We were talking about it because um, uh, they're having some of the same issues, so many issues and challenges outside the U S. And I said, I just remember early in my career that we used to put compensation on a job description. We used to post it with a compensation range out there. So you knew if this was a job you were interested in, in the sense that, did it pay what I needed? But then we got into this place of let's take that off because what if the competition finds out we're paying what we're paying? But we can find that out anyway. Um, and uh, why are we going to be so transparent? But we'll still ask you what you're making, right? And then we will, uh, you know, then change the jobs to match to be which could be lower than what we were going to pay. Then in the last 
five years, that equation has changed because states like California and Massachusetts said you can't ask what someone is making because if there's disparities, and that was there was specifically around women, disparities in their income stream over time, you will continue to perpetuate it, right? So now they don't know what we're paying. We don't know what they're making. And we all got to figure it out in, in a conversation about their expectations. Well, now um, states and cities, because I think New York is one of the first, Colorado's done it, that you now have to put salary ranges on jobs again. I'm saying, okay, we're back to where we started. Um, but I, I feel like if you put salary ranges on your jobs and you're transparent, and that's also internal too, because we don't tell our internal employees, you know, if there's the job is a promotion or not. So they see a job and they're like, okay, I want to move up in my career, but I don't know if this is a promotion because we won't tell them either. Like it's some secret, right? Um, so I, I think that we're getting back to that. And that's for people in general. And I think women will benefit greatly from that is that we're getting back to that, that conversation again is why don't we tell you what you're making? So you'll know if this is the right job for you. And I believe we should ask them what they want in relationship to where they are and have a dialogue with why they think they deserve the, you know, the increase and we'll get to where we need to be. But this, this game that we're playing, the shell game is not helping anything because if someone applies for a job and you then you give them a salary that is lower than their expectations and they take that salary to get in the door, to get in the company, believing they can do well and they don't move as fast as they quick, they're unhappy. And it started off with compensation. And I think it, it, it could have been remedied there if we'd have been honest with each other. I can only pay this high. You need this. I will not be able to make it. And your bonus structure as you go along probably will take some time to get there. So, I, so those those are the things I think are impacting what's going on right now. Yeah. You know, I, I think another way to, to look at this is that uh, according to uh, Pew, uh, women are a higher percentage of college grads in the workforce than men right now. Uh, and I, I, I think that uh, if you're in the business of trying to recruit the very top talent, the best educated, the most driven uh, for career success, uh, not putting uh, a pay on a job posting uh, is an automatic turnoff. If I'm a high flyer, particularly a passive person who's already employed someplace else, there's no way I'm going to indicate an interest in a position if I don't know that it, it is a bump up in terms of my salary. Well, you know what's interesting. You know what's interesting, though, is that if you are at the executive level, and you get called by an executive search firm, one of the biggies, and they try to sell you an opportunity because you weren't looking, they came to you. You can ask them what that job is paying, and they will tell you. But as an employer with a job less than that, we won't tell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it's the weird. It's the weirdest thing. Well, listen, we have covered a lot here. Uh, again, the, the facts that we have been talking about are from a Pew Research report on the pandemic and gender disparities in the U.S. workforce. Shalila, it's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, we are going to get much further afield in our next uh, episode. We're going to talk about the power of AI in talent acquisition, uh, looking at a report from Aptitude Research. Y you know, Lots of talent technology companies out there 
make the case that they use artificial intelligence. The problem is that there are probably as many definitions of artificial intelligence as there are solution providers. I mean, it covers everything from deep learning to natural language processing and everything in between. Uh, I think it's a very important topic for HR people to look at, however, because uh, initially uh, there was some fear among many, not all, but among many in the talent acquisition profession uh, and the HR profession that this technology was going to put them out of work. Um, I I think we've come past that. Um, I I think that uh, many companies now rely on artificial intelligence-based products to help them recruit uh, talent. Uh, But there is the additional concern about uh, hidden bias or even obvious bias from some of these machines. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is the state of the art with uh, artificial intelligence is that it's trained by humans and we humans, whether we like it or not, are creatures of, uh, of, of prejudice and bias in some respect, not everybody, please don't go to Twitter and start screaming at me. I, I know there are unbiased people out there, but, but just the way our culture has operated in the past, that seeps into the way we train these machines. So what we're going to look at uh, is Uh, Where are we today with artificial intelligence in human resources and talent acquisition in particular? And where are we going? Should be a fascinating conversation. So uh, listen, to all of you who uh, have joined us today, thank you very much. Uh, Our next episode will be coming out shortly. We'd like uh, one more time before we close out to acknowledge our sponsor, Talent.com, the solution to finding talent your way. Thanks very much, everyone, for being here. We'll see you next time. Have a good week. That concludes this episode of Start Smart. Thanks very much for joining us and come back for our next episodes on the latest research that will help you shape your talent acquisition with the facts. See you then.